Blue Wire. Kawhi Leonard is going to join the Clippers. Kawhi turns the corner for the win. Three on the way. Yes. Paul George nails it. Lou Williams for the win. Bingo. Yo, yo, yo. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Clip and Roll. I am once again joined by special guest Shane Young of Forbes Sports. Shane. Have you been able to get any sleep whatsoever or any work done? Because this schedule of one game and then a one day off and then a game and then a day off. I feel like I'm uh, Bill Murray from Groundhog's Day and I wake up with bloodshot eyes trying to figure out how I'm trying to get anything done. And I just don't know what I'm doing anymore. Exactly. To answer your question, work is plentiful. Sleep is not. Sleep is non-existent. And by the way, I was told on Twitter, Justin, that I was not worthy and Farbod had to be the special had to be the guest. Had to be the co-host of every episode. Just letting you know. Um, I mean, look, I love Farbod. I, uh, I also his schedule and mine does not jive right now. Like, <laughs> you, to get you and I to even do this was a fucking stretch, because <laughs> I, I was like, for people who do not understand, this schedule, like, if you're a fan, it's great because every other day your team's playing mm-hmm. when you're having to produce content and write articles and produce video breakdowns and do a podcast, you, you don't know how your brain's able to do things. And I've never been a nap person. And the other day I took a two, a two or two to three hour nap and I felt like I woke up in Narnia. I did not know where yeah. I was. I woke up in another world. The The other problem with it, man, you, you're actually right, right there. But like the other problem is, You'll wake up the day after the game because post game takes so long. You'll wake up the day after and be like, man, I, I, I feel like I'm rushed to do work now because there's another game and oh, uh, you know, 20 something hours. Yeah. So for people who don't know, we're recording this early Wednesday morning. Um, when by the time you hear this, it'll have just been in the can for only a couple hours and it's into your earway earwaves. No, into your eardrums. There's the word. We're off to a great start. Um, after a couple hours, you'll hear it. But just so everyone knows, I'm in the middle of, middle of doing a video breakdown that I need to have come out on Wednesday because I don't have the time to try to do three more video breakdowns <laughs> until the end of the series, like in one day. Like it, it, I did that already because time was completely condensed for me and everything was thrown into flux with personal things and like yeah. driving to Staples and coming back. Like did the amount of time that I have lost in my life from the last couple of weeks uh, actually depresses me. Um, this is now a vent session. This is a therapy session for us. <laughs> Justin, let's do this. Your, your video breakdown uh, yeah, montage, like the three of them in a row, it looked like Kevin Durant in the fourth quarter tonight. Okay, let's not go blowing smoke <laughs> up my ass right now, you know. Um, by the way, that Kevin Durant game was... Woohoo, buddy! That was a what, game. That bad. Let's let's just like let's actually give some praise to Landry Shamit having all of this, all the star power in his career. It is oh, truly yeah, remarkable. It, it well, it's remarkable that this dude has seen the amount of Hall of Famers in only what three years in the NBA. I didn't know that you thought Jerome Robinson was a Hall of Famer. Hey, that's that's Joseph Ryan Ward's favorite player. Listen, <laughs> don't do that to him right now. Don't do that to him. Um, yeah, Landry's been a part of some wild teams when you really think about it. He's with, what, Jimmy Butler, uh, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. Uh, and then he comes to the Clippers in the Tobias trade. So he's with Kawhi and PG. Um, and then, what, he goes to Brooklyn? So he's with yeah. Blake, KD, yeah. Kyrie, James Harden. Yeah, I mean, and in, to a way lesser degree, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge for like a week and DeAndre Jordan, mm-hmm. who's somewhere in Brooklyn right now, wandering <laughs> the streets. Um, By the way, props to DJ. I love that guy. He's a fun dude. Um, But yeah, what a ride for Landry Shamit's first couple years in the league. But we are not here to discuss Landry Shamit. We are here to discuss the first four games of the Clippers' second-round series against the Utah Jazz and preview not only Game 5, but potential game – or not even potential, but Game 6 and potentially a Game 7. We're going to run through the first four games, 
primarily because it is late at night and I don't have the brain capacity to go into 10 minute, 15 minute deep dives about each game. So we're going to run through this. You ready? Yeah. Oh, there's the excitement that I was waiting for. That's what's up. <laughs> All right, so game one took place on June 8th. Uh, the Clippers lost 112-109. It was a very interesting game because when it really comes down to things, the Clippers come into this game with pretty much no rest. They just played a Sunday afternoon game, game seven against the Dallas Mavericks. They win it. They go into Utah on Tuesday, and you know it's a short turnaround, one day, one day of rest. You're now in a uh, high-altitude location against a team that's had six days off and you're going to have to try to win this game. And the Clippers come out looking solid. I'm not going to say they look great, but they look solid. Um, they made 11 threes in the first half of game one. The biggest key for them getting a 13 point halftime lead against Utah in game one was that Utah just couldn't make anything. Utah shot 32% in the first half. They were seven of 27 from three, which is 26%. That's God awful. Um, it wasn't so much what the Clippers were doing. It was what Utah wasn't doing. And the thing that you were worried about in the second half was, Hey, fatigue might set in and Shane fatigue set in in a major way. Cause the Clippers went five and 19 from three in the second half. Utah got hot, but to the Clippers credit, they were in this game. You know, they're down nine with three minutes to go. They're down eight with one twenty to go. And Kawhi makes a layup. They force a turnover. PG hits a three with 38 seconds to go. They force a miss and now they're down three coming up with the ball. And unfortunately they don't get a good look off. It's Marcus Morris in the corner, the near side corner with Rudy Gobert closing out. It gets mm -hmm. blocked. He gets the rebound. The next shot goes up, but it wasn't in time at all. Um, I guess, I guess you could view it as a botched final possession. Ty took some heat after the game and post game, when he said the reason he didn't call his remaining timeout was because he didn't want to take Rudy Gobert off the floor, which people kind of scoffed at. Like why would Utah take the reigning defensive player of the year off the floor? But as he said, he was worried that Utah might take him off the floor for a more switchable defender because the Clippers did need a three and yeah. they were going to, they were not going to attack the rim to get a layup. They were going to try to get a three to tie the game. So I understood the reasoning behind it, even if it sounded weird the way that he said it. But, you know, the Clippers were in that game. They didn't play well in the second half at all. Utah blitzed them primarily behind Donovan Mitchell, who in the second half alone scored 32 of his game-high 45 and was just a complete buzzsaw because he got downhill to the rim at will. And that was the biggest problem for the Clippers in game one is they had no way to stop him getting to the rim. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I want to give a lot of credit to... I think it, it was it Joe Ingles. I think it was Joe Ingles on that last possession. I It was him or Bullion. Uh, I, I really do believe it was Joe Ingles. I'm already off to such a good start, as you can tell. Um, I, I think on that last possession of game one, he blew up the DHO with, with PG and Kawhi. Kawhi. He, yeah. I think Kawhi would have been open if, if not for that. Yeah, and... I thought Utah was just the more dialed in defensive team, you know, down the stretch of that, of that game, I guess the entire second half, obviously the shot making was one thing, but, but they, they did a really good job of, um, you know, forcing LA into some tough, tough shots and contested shots. To me, the story of game one, the downhill stuff, which you harped on a lot, how, you know, if you're forcing Donovan Mitchell to take a lot of contested pull-ups, or Jordan Clarkson to take a lot of the stuff that he's making, which, you know, to be quite frank, is a lot of junk that he's that he's made so far. Um, good junk because I mean he's <laughs> he's insanely efficient on these pull-up shots, but still it's it's you know not that efficient of uh, of looks in general. But if you're allowing that, you can't also allow Donovan to dictate the action, get inside, uh, you know, get past that free throw line, force a lot of help, and open up open up the floodgates is what I saw in game one and you know, the story outside of that, I, I thought the story was like, you know, PG settling for some bad shots, you know, kind of the in-between mid Rangers when he got Rudy Gobert, not, you know, uh, like out on the Island, not really wanting to attack him kind of looking indecisive. And I think PG actually said after game one and game two, maybe that, you know, he can't be indecisive and he has to, actually put his head down and go to the rim or, you know, 
get more comfortable pulling Rudy out and, you know, shooting those threes, uh, you know, pull-ups and step-back stuff like that. So, I mean, he he just looked a little bit indecisive. And I thought that, honestly, to be, you know, to be quite, quite for, you know, just to, to be front about it, I thought that they used game one as the, the fill-out approach. Like, we you know, they didn't have a lot of preparation for Utah. And that's not to say Utah had preparation for them either because they didn't know who they were going to play till the end of game seven of Dallas and L.A. anyway. But it's like, you know, the, the Clippers were not put in the best position to go into altitude and, and perform like that. I mean, they weren't, but they also did it to themselves by not finishing Dallas off sooner. Like, that's yeah. really what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, PG goes 4-17. He finishes with 20 points. He gets to the line 10 times, which he which has actually been a theme for him in this series and even dating back uh, a little bit to the Dallas series. Um, people are going to point to PG's 4-17. I'm not really that mad about it. Like he was aggressive uh, in certain situations, but not nearly enough as he needed to be. Kawhi went nine of 19 and had 23 points. And honestly, um, we're going to get into game two in a second, but like I was really underwhelmed with Kawhi, like more than PG. Mm -hmm. I was more underwhelmed with Kawhi because I just felt like Kawhi was maybe not coasting, but like, like we heard it after one of the games or, or going into game three, which was that, Ty said, you know, I think Kawhi and PG are doing a good job of taking what the defense is giving them. And I'm like, that's true. But like, should they like, shouldn't they like force the defense to give them things? Yeah. And Kawhi was kind of just out there doing whatever, which I mean, it's fine. It's game one. I understand it. It's fine. Um, the main reason the Clippers were even in that game is because Luke Kennard went absolutely batshit. He had 18 <laughs> points. He was seven of nine, made four of his six threes. Um, he really buoyed them in that first half and even a little bit in the second half. Um, but they lose game one. They then turn around, play game two. They lose 117-111. This is a much different game. Um, it's a game that Utah ultimately controlled from the outset. And um, when you look at everything, Utah should have won this game in a blowout. And at one point, they were up by 21 uh, I believe midway through the third quarter, they were up by 21. And then the Clippers come back. Uh, Reggie Jackson gives the Clippers a lead with about six minutes to go in the fourth quarter of game two. And after that, the Clippers kind of fell apart in, in the sense of they got the shots that they wanted, but they didn't make them. They got a plethora of wide open threes that they just missed. Otherwise, they probably win game two which is a crazy thing to say because Utah was yeah. 20 of 39 on threes, which is 51%. They made 23s. The Clippers were 11 of 30. They got outshot. They simply got outshot by a wide margin and they mm -hmm. were in that game. Like they were in that game at the end. Um, they had their chances, you know, uh, Reggie Jackson, like Luke Kennard, the game before goes absolutely mental. He has a, a team high 29 points. He goes 11 of 19. He makes four of his eight threes. Uh, PG goes 8 of 18, 27 points. Kawhi goes 8 of 17, 21 points. And once again, Kawhi just kind of coasted through things, just was like, whatever. I feel uh, like game PG, two was was Kawhi's worst game, probably. Yeah, since if you look at the overall of the playoffs, it's kind of interesting. Like, I don't know which game I would say was worse from him. Game two against Utah or game five against Dallas? Like, game five against Dallas, he missed shots. Mm-hmm. But, like, game two against Utah, I was like, is he here? Like, is he actually here? Yeah, PG, PG's the one that kind of propelled them, right, in the fourth quarter of game two. And I think he was the one that kind of got them back on track, got them getting the shots that they wanted, and it kind of helped them feel that uh, comeback. I guess it was not in the fourth quarter. I guess it would have been the late third, right? Yeah, and even in the fourth, he's the main guy scoring. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, game two, though... There was a moment, uh, you know, I guess for the listeners, like I was in the building for game one, games one and two, and it was electric would be a mild way to put it because it was the loudest building I've personally been in. And uh, there was a moment in the second quarter, I guess to, to end the second quarter of game two, where Donovan Mitchell gets Morris, Marcus Morris out on the left wing and the clock's winding down. This might have been the second to last possession. And he pulls up with just an absolute superstar Kevin Durant Hall of Fame type shot. Something that you just would not expect. 
someone of Donovan Mitchell's size from that range to be able to do. And I guess like he just channeled his inner bubble 2020 playoff level that he had because it was the type of shot making in that first half, Justin, of game two that that kind of just had my jaw drop to the floor. He's been incredible in the series as a whole. In those two games in Utah, he absolutely controlled. Uh, he was the best player on the floor in that's in the first two games. By it wasn't even close. It was by far. Um, <laughs> it's kind of staggering the Clippers lost game two by as little of a margin as they did based on Utah shooting, but also Utah only had two offensive rebounds. Like the Clippers kept them off the offensive glass. It's just they couldn't make enough of their own shots, and they had their chances. And maybe that's the one that, like, you know, when we talk about what the series could turn into, maybe that's the one that they're going to end up kind of regretting at the end of the day. Um, but they lose game you know, two. It was a nine of 32 on wide open threes in the first two games. Nine of 32. Something like that. It was, it was, Ooh. it was bad. It was, they just were shooting awful. Um, and to keep up a theme through the first two games, their opposition was shooting bananas from three on pull-ups because I don't know why, but that's like a thing now in the postseason against the Clippers this year. Well, Game can you, and, and you're sorry. So no, totally right sorry. And your experience watching playoff basketball, can you remember a single playoff run that has been, I guess, weighed or, or heavily turned because of such wild shot variants? Not really. This is the best pure shot making postseason I've ever seen. God, I mean, that's, you know, even because I feel like even in 2016, 2017, when this kind of new, new generation, new era of, of pull up shooting and I guess just like, uh, you know, three point heavy offense was, was kind of kicking it into high gear, you still had, you still had a feel where if a team had a 2 0 series lead and they were shooting like that, like Utah was there was no doubt in your mind they were going to win the series. But now it's like, okay, well, the Clippers have a chance to go home and get hot. And that that that's what happened. And that's that's been the case throughout the whole playoffs for, for both conferences, for all teams. Yeah, I mean, you said they got hot. Game three, Clippers get hot. Uh, they go 19 of 36 from three, which is 52.8%. But not to be outdone, Utah also makes 19 threes. Now, they don't make 53% of them. But they make 43%. Utah shot 44 threes, 19 of 44 is 43%. But Utah only shot 43% for the game. Donovan Mitchell went scoreless in the first quarter. Now, he finished with 30 points. So to score 30 points in the final three quarters is pretty incredible. But he went scoreless in the first quarter. I want to say it was the first quarter in his postseason career where he's gone scoreless. Was that stat right? Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember that time. But he also, I think he also did it in... The in game four as well, or he he had a very I think he didn't score in game four or f- first quarter, either. Uh, no, he had, he had four points in game four. Four points. First quarter. Okay. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh. At the end of the day, the Clippers win game four or excuse me, game three. Uh, one thirty two, one oh six. They controlled the game. I mean, they fall behind eight nothing, which has been a lovely theme throughout this postseason of. Uh, them lose. They've lost every tip in the postseason. Every opening tip, they've lost all eleven opening tips. And on ten of the eleven uh, possessions that the team has started with, the other team has started with, they've scored on that first possession. So the Clippers have actually trailed at the outset of every game. I don't understand why this is happening. It's just a funny <laughs> thing. Yes, I understand they've gone small. It's still a very weird thing. Oh, and I guess we should have touched on it. In game one, the Clippers start with small ball. In game two, they start Evita Zubats instead of Nicholas Batum. In game three, Ty goes back to Nicholas Batum. And game four, he rolls with Batum again. So they're they're heavily committed to small ball at this point. Like it's it's the thing now. Um but the biggest takeaway from game three, uh, you know, Kawhi finished with finished with 34 points, 12 rebounds, five assists. He was fantastic. Uh, but the biggest takeaway was PG. 31 mm-hmm. points, three rebounds, five assists. Doesn't sound great. Or I mean, sounds good. Uh, what, what I'm trying to say though is, he carried them in the first half. Uh, I believe he scored 20 of his points in the first half. Uh, he got to the uh, he got to his spots at the rim. He was able to make some threes. Finally, he looked like the PG that he's looked like all season long. And he ends up taking 10 threes. He makes six of them. Uh, 
he he looked like he was out for blood and the Clippers end up running away with this in the, about midway through the fourth. They were up 11. Donovan Mitchell tweaked his ankle, but he, he's fine. But he tweaked his ankle. He comes out. They were up 11 and then they push it to 28 and then they just cruise to a 26 point lead or victory. Not Well, I guess lead to, but victory. Yeah. And they finally got on the board in the series. They get a win. So it's a lot like the Dallas series where it's like they lose the first two. They win the third in, you know, they start slow in the third, but then they, you know, they kind of just pounce and really hit this death of destroyer mode on the other team. Um, I don't know if there's really anything you want to talk about game three. Game three seems like the most forward game of them all. Yeah. The only thing I was going to say about game three is, you know, just watching it personally, it felt like that was the game that they, that they generated everything they wanted to generate. Like it was the, it was it was the game where the offense was running the most fluidly. It was, you know, I feel like the, you know, maybe the data doesn't back it up, but they probably had more wide open shots, or they had just as many, if not more, than game four. It felt like the, their offense was clicking on all cylinders that night. And I, I guess the the biggest talking point we should really touch on for game three is that is what that is the game that initiated the blitz Donovan Mitchell strategy. Yeah, so they tried to blitz him in game one, but, like, it was half-assed. Yeah. It was like, oh, I guess we're doing it, kind of. And if you're going to blitz Donovan Mitchell, you have to actually blitz him. Like, he's way too good at splitting doubles and splitting traps and splitting blitzes that if you're not fully committed to it, he will split it and get right downhill to the rim, and then you're screwed. Um, It killed him in game one. It killed him a little bit more in game two. Game three, they started to do it, but they did it differently. They didn't just blitz him. They blitzed him late to get the ball out of his hands. Mm -hmm. And I felt like Utah didn't have a good counter to that. Um, Game three was interesting because the Clippers found things beyond even just that. They found that they could do that. They found that they could bait Utah into into throwing late passes to Rudy Gobert on the roll. And when they threw the late pass, the Clippers stole it several times. I remember there was a two-possession sequence where Luke Kennard and Reggie Jackson get steals against Rudy Gobert because the pass is just way late and way crappy. I don't like. I don't know what's going on with Utah. We're going to talk about that uh, when we profile the rest of the series. But the other thing was they finally figured out the small ball thing and how it should work against Rudy. Like guys have to be decisive against it. And I thought that coming home, PG really understood that. Like, look, Rudy Gobert is going to be in drop coverage, and if he if we come off the screen and Rudy's in drop, I got to shoot it. Like that's simple as that. And Kawhi realized that too in the mid range. So that was a nice change. And they carried that over to game four. Game four is a 118 104 Clipper win. And they even the series. Both teams shoot 40 and a half percent from three. Both teams are obviously elite, elite, elite three point shooting teams. Utah makes 17 of 42. Clippers make 15 of 37. There's your 40 and a half percent for both teams. What the Clippers did though was kind of different in game four which is they finally got marcus morris going he'd been struggling from three in the first three games but he gets going in game four he scores 22 of his 24 points in the first half pg and Kawhi each score 31 um pg's aggressive again getting downhill to the rim pg's pulling up from threes more you know all these things and Kawhi started to be getting that mode of like i understand that I am bigger than these wing defenders and stronger than these wing defenders. I need to do something. And PG to that extent too. Like it was like something clicked in both their minds of like, Oh, we're actually taller than Royce O'Neal. We might want to take advantage of this. It was very strange that, well, I was gonna say it's strange. It took that long. Yeah. Or, you know, it, it took so long to actually use your eyes and see that, Oh, Jordan Clarkson's in front of me. Let's not pass out of this. Let's actually, bulldoze him all the way to five or six feet near the basket, force that extra defender. And then, Oh, okay, we have an advantage on the backside on the weak side. So, you know, that that's one thing that I've always wanted to harp on, or, you know, always wanted to touch on is like when you're talking about attacking a mismatch as in like a Clarkson, or even they started hunting Donovan Mitchell a little bit too, which was, you know, they started, so they started, they started hunting Donovan in the second half of game two. Mm-hmm. Um, when they really made their comeback, that's when the changes really, or the adjustments, I should say, really started. The second half of game two, they started attacking Mitchell more on defense and pressuring him full court more often. Yeah, and it's like 
you know, I guess the average fan would would think that that means that oh, they're just going to score every time against Donovan or that shot is going to be uh, attempted from Kawhi or PG in that scenario. But it's more of like, what does it force the other help defenders to do? Like, what, what does it force uh, Utah to do as a, as a team defense whenever they're they're watching their guy getting posted up or getting take, taken off the dribble into the paint? So I think that was smart by Ty and the Clippers. Yeah, I mean, Mitchell goes 9 of 26. Uh, he scores 37, um, 6 of 15 from 3, which is a ton of three-pointers for him, a ton of three-point attempts, I should say. Goes to the free throw line 15 times. Uh, I wouldn't really look at free throw attempts in this game, um, primarily because the fourth quarter took seven years. Um, each team <laughs> just felt like fouling every time down the floor. For instance, like Mitchell had 15 attempts. Kawhi had 13. PG had 10. Uh, the Marcus card- even had eight. You know, like Jesus. it took so long. The cardboard fans were getting tired, man. They were. Yeah, they went home. It's the last game we're going to see them. They were that they were that pissed, you know. Um, But no, the Clippers have found some things. Um, You know, they're up by 29 in the second quarter in this game. Yes, they let the rope slip a little bit. And I think Utah got it back within 10 at one point, but it wasn't fully in danger. Uh. Utah is interesting because they're never out of a game. And I remember tweeting it during the game. Like, look, it's a 21 point lead with, you know, like I think it was like 10 or 11 minutes to go, you know, it's a 21 point lead, but like Utah, like 21 can go down to 10 real fast with them. And second half, they made nine of their 18 threes. I thought that was the biggest thing is though, is only 18 of their 37 shots in the second half. I say only because that's almost 50%, but 18 of their 37 were from three. And Mm -hmm. I don't feel like it absolutely killed the Clippers anymore because they, this is going to sound like a weird way to phrase this. So just bear with me, but they only lost the second half by 10 points in which the other team made five more threes. Yeah. So I don't look at it as a bad thing. Yeah. And for me, um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of how many turnovers they, uh, the jazz had in that game, but only 11 that that's partly going to your point here is that Utah is never out of a game because they don't turn the ball over a lot. I've, I feel like Quinn Snyder has talked about that. He talked about that after game one, someone asked him, um, it was Utah jazz media that asked him about, you know, how is your team always so careful with their possessions? And it's like, well, because we value taking the open shot. If you value taking the, the first or the best uh, open shot, even if it's early in the shot clock, you're inherently limiting the amount of times you're driving into the paint or that you're doing something reckless or careless and turning the ball over so that they're never out of a game because they value their possessions. And I do have a little bit, a little bit of a bone to pick on the jazz side here. And I guess we can, you know, I know this is all about Clippers, but I think we should talk about, I don't understand why they are only playing Rudy Gobert 32 minutes or so. Thank you. It, it's mind boggling. I, I sincerely mean that. Thank you. It, it is. It is absolutely pissed me off from a basketball standpoint. I. I feel like. I feel like we could write a book about how statistically egregious it is to think that a guy is going is going to have a higher probability of fouling out if he plays with you know three or four fouls in the third quarter or whatever the case is. It's like you you have to you have to trust that your guy will make a, a will make better judgments as the as the game goes on even if he has you know three or four fouls and Rudy only had only finished with five fouls in game 4 in a game in which he was minus 1 and the Jazz lost by 14 i mean mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's wild to me Rudy Gobert is is obviously very well conditioned he can move he's moving around better you know, as a as a all purpose defender, even defending on the perimeter more. So I think that he would be, I think he would fare well with forty minutes. Bump that dude up eight more minutes. I don't get it. Yeah, their their whole thing with Rudy is actually. I mean, you know this more than anyone because you and I've been texting about this like for basically the last two days. Like, what the hell's going on with their usage of Rudy Gobert and why? Like, like why is everything so wacky when it comes to him? Like when you end up looking at Rudy Gobert in this series, one of the most staggering things. So just so people understand, the Clippers have the point differential edge in this series. When you end up looking at the four games of this series, 
the Clippers on the whole have outscored the Utah Jazz by 31 points. Um, obviously, when you, I mean, yes, there's it's 2 2, but the Clippers have blown them out in a couple games, so that's why. Utah is still two points better with Rudy Gobert on the court in this series. <laughs> um, they've been outscored when you end up looking at it, they've been outscored by 33 points when he sat, which isn't the worst differential on the team. Um, because Joe Ingles, they're plus 17 with Ingles on the floor and minus 48 without him. Uh, and, and that's weird because Ingles has been pretty bad defensively. So that's kind of weird. But. Yeah, I don't think Ingles has been good defensively, but also he's made 15 of his 33s. So that'll cure a <laughs> lot of things. And, and he's their best passer. He's the only guy who yeah. can get Rudy the ball right now. And he's um, the only guy that I, that watching that zone in real time in game two, He's the only guy that I thought could be the zone breaker because of him possibly getting into the middle of the floor at the nail and, and, you know, kind of dictating from there. I mean, you're not wrong. Um, It's just been a very interesting series. And I don't understand what Quinn has done as it pertains to Rudy. Now, this isn't to say that Ty's been infallible either. Like Ty played Rondo 28 minutes in game one, and I believe played him like 18 minutes in the second half. And we haven't seen Rondo since Rondo was actually inactive in game four with a sore right knee. So um, I just think Rondo's series is over. I just, I, he's not needed. I think that this is the nine man rotate, the, the, the nine man rotation that we've seen in game three and four, though, that's the rotation that it should be. So, you know, Marcus, Batum, Kawhi, PG, Reggie, Pat Bev, uh, Terrence, Luke, and Zoo. I do think Zoo can play in the series. It's a little weird that I think he can play in the series, but that's kind of just where I'm at right now. Um, but Utah needs to figure out the the just like I'm trying to think of like a nice way to say this. They're completely screwing over their chances because they don't know what they want to do with Rudy. I think yeah. small ball scared them. Like they won't ever say it, and I don't blame them for not saying it. But like they they don't know what to do with him. Because I think the perception to them is the Clippers are spreading us out and we're watching Rudy get yo-yoed from the paint to back to the wing, to the corner, to the paint, like all this stuff. And so the perception is he's not able to be fluid enough to do all this when he's been fine. Like their defense without him in the series, this is absolutely absurd. I'm going to tell you this step. So with him on the floor in 131 minutes, their defensive rating is 111.1. That's not good. That's still miles better than anyone else on the team. In fact, on the floor, 111.1, 131 minutes. Remember I said that, 111.1. Mm-hmm. 61 minutes without him, it's 145.2. Yeah. Uh, that does not that does not bode well for Mr. Derek Favors, who has a memorial service coming up soon after Kawhi Leonard just put him into the torture chamber. Yeah, I I don't think if Utah and I say if I'm not I'm not proclaiming anything as over in the series. If Utah loses the series, it's because they kept trotting Derek Favors out there, and it's nothing against Derek Favors. I think Derek Favors is a good player. In fact, I think he's a very good player and probably one of the top three or four backup centers in the league. Um, I don't think he looks washed. I just don't think he has a place in this series because. When, fa- when when Favors comes in, they are attacking downhill to score. They do not respect him as a rim protector, which is a wild sentence to say, considering how good of a rim protector he can be and has been throughout his career. Uh, PG's yeah. been ruthless going at him. Kawhi's been ruthless. Everyone's back cutting behind him. You know, all these things. And it's like, they just have no answer. And they need to play Rudy more minutes, but I don't know yeah. if he can take it. Like I do, like I think he can, but um, they're they're upticking their pace quite a bit in this series. The Clippers are to try to like kind of run him off the floor. Conversely, it's like uh, you know when Favors is in the game, I, I feel like I feel like PG and Kawhi, even though they they understand Favors is still a big human and he can he can deter shots. I mean, I I think that they understand they can use their body and their strength to kind of combat that and to draw fouls or, you know, knock them back a little bit with Rudy. It's like, even if you knock him back, his length is still going to get the best of you sometimes. And, and I know you saw in game four, it, it was like a, a, a bunch of times in a row. It might've been like maybe six or seven possessions in a row, like Kawhi and PG 
driving into the paint and it's like, oh, we're going to attack Rudy. No, we're not. Sorry. Like, uh, you know, I second guess myself right when I get into the restricted area. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. And Kawhi has those little, you know, uh, pump fake pivots, pass outs where he almost throws the ball away. <laughs> yeah, that's been fun to watch. Let me tell you. Um, the interesting thing for Utah, and I understand we need to talk about the Clippers, but this pertains to the Clippers, to be honest. The in- interesting part for Utah is I'm not sure how much Derek Favors can play, but I feel like he has to play at least a little bit. Um, the problem is you don't have a small ball five to to match with the Clippers. And George Niang has been a tire fire. <laughs> he uh, like respect to the dude. He's carved out a hell of a niche for himself and he is a good player. He's a very helpful player. He hasn't been in the series. Um, Jordan Clarkson is getting eviscerated defensively and for some reason can't make twos. I don't know why. They, they could dust off Ursan Ilyasova if they, if they wanted to, I guess. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, is that like the worst option? I mean, that's the only option, bro. Like, that's it. I mean, I I almost wonder if they shouldn't. And this isn't to say, like, like I think you should play Rudy 36 to 40 minutes. Yeah. But I mean, in the minutes he's not in the game, can you not just play Bogdanovich at center? Yeah. Like if they're uh, matching with matching with when Marcus is at center, just put Boy on there. Yeah, like you could you could go Bogdanovich, Ingles, Mitchell, uh O'Neal and then if you really want to Clarkson or even Niang if you really want to, if you want to get more size, that's fine. Um, that's a switch everything lineup. If if Clarkson's not in there, you could literally switch all that, and you for the most part you will be fine outside of possibly the Mitchell matchup against whoever. Um, Jeez, Niang in thirteen minutes took two shots, missed them both, fouled four times, minus thirteen. He's one of eleven in the series, one of nine from three. <sighs> the shot hurts I, me to to look at, by the way. So he, it's not a confident shot. It's it's not. Um, it's the shot of a guy who's like, oh, I guess I'm the last option. And that's kind of it, which isn't great. Um, but also this comes back to Rudy. Like everything comes back to Rudy and it's not his fault. I don't, I'm not saying it's Rudy's fault. The The issue with Utah right now, and this is because Conley is not there is at least right now, Conley is not there is uh, Utah's not looking for Rudy enough on the role and the Clippers don't respect it. Like they're not, they do not at all respect him on the role or, or I shouldn't even say don't respect him. They don't respect Utah being able to find him, which is a wild sentence to say when someone's seven foot three. Um, Utah's missed him a ton diving to the rim. They they missed him over and over in game three. They missed him even more in game four. Uh, He got a couple baskets in game four, but outside of that, like off roll action, it wasn't much. Like they kept missing him. The only guy who can find him is Joe Ingles. And yeah, I was I was just about to say the only way they can get it to him is if they trap Donovan Mitchell from 35 feet. He gets the ball to Joe and Joe leads that four on three and can get kind of get Rudy from the dunker spot. That That's the only way they can they've found Rudy in those situations. I mean, Joe did find him on a pick and roll uh, in like the fourth quarter of game four. Like he found him early on the roll, like flat out got him the ball right over the top for an easy dunk. And it's like okay, what was the problem the previous 40 minutes? Like, you're down 20. Like, like that's, like, yeah, you can find things, like, late in games. Like, for instance, in the Dallas series, Rick Carlisle realized, you know, Dwight Powell can actually play at the end of game four in a blowout. Like, you know, so you can learn things in blowouts, but I don't know why they're not looking for Rudy more. It, it's, like, from a basketball standpoint, like, it just boggles my mind because, your entire offense is predicated on this really big dude rolling hard to the rim a hundred times a game because you can collapse the defense. And then when the defense isn't collapsing, you're just not passing him the ball. Yeah. And it's frustrating from a, like if you're a big man and go bear spot, it's frustrating because you're putting all of your effort and all of your intensity in those 32 minutes on the defensive end and trying to deter to all world superstars in Kawhi and PG, which you have been doing for the most part, forcing them to take a lot of threes. And it's, uh, you know, I guess your reward on the other end is not touching the ball for, I, I would be curious to look at his touches. 
Um, cause obviously the four shot attempts, he's not, he's not ever going to be someone that has a lot of attempts, but it's like, Hey, let the dude touch the ball a little bit. Let, let maybe if you get it to him on the roll every now and then, then you're going to create even more threes. And you know, they still got up 42 as a team Utah did, but it's like, maybe they get even cleaner looks if the, if the dude is actually absorbing the defense down there. He's averaging 13.3 front court touches per game in this round. That feels terrible. He averaged 21 against Memphis. Yeah. Okay. How do you decrease that by eight a game? I don't know. <laughs> I, I Especially I whenever, whenever there's no big, I mean, because you know, Valanchunas it was is 24. A, it, I don't mean to cut you off. It was 24 a game in the regular season. How is yeah. he getting the ball fewer times in the front court? I don't, I don't understand it. I just, yeah. Valanchunas uh, is someone that is, I can understand why it was like that against him, but whenever it's against Marcus or against, you know, uh, a smaller defender on a duck end, like there's no way he shouldn't get it more. In the regular season, Rudy averaged 10.6 paint touches per game. That's the regular season. 10.6 paint touches per game. In the first round, it was 11.2. In the second round, seven point eight. <laughs> oh man, I, I I don't get it. I I really don't. I like, and, and and on the like for the Clipper side, I should be like, oh, I'm I'm happy they're not finding this guy. Like, thank God. But like, I'm trying to like critically think my way through it and just be like, what's the point? Because they can't even get him the ball when he has position because they're throwing the ball too low. Y- your dudes a goddamn Eiffel tower basically. And you can't throw the ball above the rim to him. Yeah. Like, come on, man. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of possessions where Nick in particular has done a really good job of a fronting. Uh, yeah. yeah. Fronting. And then also playing too. So like there, the, that one possession I showed you earlier where he kind of has to like stunt at the ball handler and then get back to Rudy really quick. And and they've actually cut off a lot of passing lanes too. I, th- I think, I he think that's why that. I asked, so so he paid for that. Batum did in the fourth quarter. Ingles had a dump off to Rudy. Yeah, and that's when he did that. And I'm just like, did you figure this out finally after like three <laughs> and a third, like three and like three quarters games? Like, did you finally figure this crap out? And you have to think that your highest paid player is is voicing this in the film session. So you would expect one of the smartest coaches in the NBA, which I think Quinn is to may, maybe adjust that going forward. Now, if we don't see Rudy getting role opportunities in game five, then I'm really scratching my head. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, especially because game five is a home game and that's the game you're going to have to win. Um, I understand the Clippers have to beat Utah in Utah at least once. And there's only two more tries left, but I feel like Utah is searching for more answers than the Clippers are at this point. And maybe maybe that's just me thinking that, and that's really not the case. Because to be honest, you and I were on this podcast after four games against Dallas, and we said the same thing: Clippers have figured out a lot of things. I don't know what Dallas is going to do, and then Dallas won Game Five. Um, but I guess the biggest elephant in the room comes from the smallest man, which is Mike Conley. Uh, he's been out for all four games with a hamstring strain. He is now questionable for Game Five. I'm very curious to see if he plays. I personally watched him 15, 20 feet in front of me before game four, warming up and taking shots. Uh, He looked like he was moving okay. Um, I don't know what he can give them. I think there are pros and cons. Uh, I don't want him to get hurt because I like like Mike Conley. I think Mike Conley is an awesome dude. Um, I think positive-wise for Utah, they need another ball handler. And another great decision maker. Mike Conley is their best decision maker. He's the he guy and, who could, he and Rudy have had really good pick and roll chemistry. Now. Yeah, I was about to say he's the guy who can unlock Rudy. Um, he's also the guy who can get to the rim more than you know anybody else, or at least put the pressure on the rim to find more open shooters. Um, but then there's the cons. What's his mobility going to be like? Like, is he a detriment defensively? Because I think the Utah starting lineup right now has been pretty solid to good defensively. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I know it sounds crazy to say, cause it's Mike Conley, but 
we watched James Harden in game five against Milwaukee on one leg just look like he had no business defending a traffic cone. And for some reason, Milwaukee, and I don't want to get too much into this, for some reason, Milwaukee just refused to go at him, which was amazing to watch, I guess. And even if Mike, like if Mike Conley comes in and he is not, because he's not going to be 100%, but if he's not even looking mobile or anything defensively and that becomes the concern, I still think even if Mike was like just like 60%, like he would give them another option, another shooting threat, which they don't really need, but but it always helps. Um, I guess a little I bit less. I disagree with you. I really? think they need it. I think they need another shooting threat. Okay. I I mean they get up a lot anyway, and hell, it, it, you could you could look at Utah's game four, and it, it could feel like they're not shooting well because they're getting blown out or they're down by a certain you know twenty nine at one point, and then they're like seventeen of forty two. They are the most deceiving team to me because it looks like they're playing rough, but then they just. Uh, you know, progress back to the mean by the end of the game. And for me, it's like, even if Colleen's on the floor, I have to wonder, I'm going to ask you this, considering his height, I know he's he has a reputation of a really physical, aggressive defender, but I kind of still think Kawhi and PG would, would kind of like not hunt Conley. That's not the right word. They would hunt him. Yeah, you know, I was trying to in stay his, away from that. In his but diminished, they, no, in his diminished state, at his size, they would hunt him. Yeah, I mean, I would for sure. And it wouldn't even be a scenario where, like, you know, they would try to post him up or anything. It would be like, okay, we could just shoot over you and we get to our mid range, a little step back stuff, and then shoot over you. Yeah. It, I, I love Mike Conley. If he's diminished and he's playing, I don't know how the Clippers just don't pick on that. I really don't. Um, and going back, like, Utah does need another shooter. You know, Royce O'Neal, very good shooter. I'm not hating on Royce O'Neal. But he and Bogdanovich have combined for 39 three-point attempts. Clarkson's taken 40. Mitchell's taken 51. They need someone else. Like, Ingles has taken 30. But, like, they need someone else to generate shots for themselves and others. Because this is a lot of pull-up stuff. And, yes, they are hitting it at a ridiculous rate. But they're not getting wide-open catch-and-shoot threes as much as they were in the regular season. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean what was the pull-up numbers? I don't even think you've mentioned them so far. 96, I don't even, 93. I don't even know. It was, it was some wild stuff that I kind of, I think I closed the tab either way. Um, Oh no, I have, I'm sorry. I didn't close it. Uh, 41 of 93, which is 44.1% <laughs> on pull-up threes in the series. Um, For people it, who it, think it, that's like, I mean, that, I was just going to say exactly threes. what you did. Yeah. I was about to say the exact thing, exact same thing you did. It's like pull, people that think pull-up threes, what what the average number is like teams don't shoot 40% on pull up threes. <laughs> I mean, they shot 42% on pull up threes in the first round Dallas for people who know for the Clippers shot 41%. Even if you go back to the regular season, this is actually the kind of crazy part. This is, this is, this is why I think Utah's is actually sustainable. Uh, they were second in the league and pull up three point attempts behind Portland, which obviously Dame, um, but Utah was fifth, or excuse me, fourth in pull-up three-point percentage. Uh, the Clippers were actually third. So, I mean, this is a team who can make pull-up threes. So, I'm not... I I do think more so than Dallas, by by a mile, by a mile more so than Dallas, Utah's pull-up three-point percentage is probably sustainable. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not Tim Hardaway, a, a lot of Tim Hardaway. <laughs> It's not a lot of him. I mean, Jordan Clarkson's hitting some absurd shots, but at the same yeah. time, I mean, the trade-off between Mitchell and Doncic, I think Mitchell's been better this year at pull-up threes. So I haven't looked at the numbers, but that's what I believe. Um, I know that's like a weird sentence to say. I kind I should have looked at the numbers before saying that. But oh boy, um, Mitchell. Mitchell on pull-up threes is a lot more confident, I think. Like, it's more explosive. Like, he's getting more lift. It's 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 more fluid. Yeah. Um, and we every, did... Every Doncic pull-up three is going back. Mm-hmm. Well, we did also see Donovan sustain this for seven games in a series before against Denver, which was... Even if it, he was, was, even if it was in the bubble, he did sustain yeah. this for seven games. And that's hard to do. And, and that was a seven-game series that was every other day with no breaks, except for the social social injustice stuff that was going on but um 
it's actually very funny to look at the Clippers' numbers this postseason. Uh, they're six and five, and they're plus sixty-seven in point differential. <laughs> oh my god! Hey, hey, if they could win, dude, what are they? Yeah, they're six and five in the playoffs. They could be the team. Like, they're definitely going to set records if they do go on to the finals or, or win a title with just like the most egregious uh, disparity with record and point differential because. You know, theoretically, I mean, you get to Phoenix, and that's not even <laughs> that's a tough challenge as well. So, by the way, the Suns with nine days off potentially, woo! Nine days is a lot, man. It's a lot. Uh, for people who do not know, if Clippers Jazz goes seven, and the Clippers win, and the Clippers Suns Conference Finals goes seven, Game Seven is July fourth. It's nuts. I don't even want, I don't even know what to say. It's just nuts. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen in this Clippers Jazz series. I think the Clippers have the edge right now, but they had the edge against Dallas after four games, after those games three and four in Dallas, and completely crapped the bed in game five, or at least at the end of the third quarter in game five, and had a chance to win game five still and crapped the bed there too. So I don't know what to expect out of this Clippers team. And that's what makes them so magical this year, Shane. Yeah, because you can think you have a handle on a series. I think for for me that was game four. After, you know, after they beat Dallas pretty decisively in game four, it's like okay, we thought we had the handle on the series. We thought we we had it figured out. Like it, it became predictable up to that point. But no, like you know, Luca comes in there and just dominates like he did. I think when he hit six straight threes in the first quarter of Game Five, it was it was sickening, and uh, that kind of feels like this series where I'm going to be honest with you. After the first two games, I was telling Miriam uh, that it was over. I, I just thought that uh, coming back from down two zero to against Utah was was a a mountain that not only the Clippers couldn't do, but no team in the league this year would be able to do. And, hey, it's 2-2. Shows you how much I know. Shows you how much this entire playoff run is just predicated on shooting variants, which that term has been said so many times, and I apologize for keeping on saying it, but that is what it comes down to. It's like both Utah and the Clippers are generating awesome shots for the most part. I mean, the Clippers have done a really good job of kind of making things a, a lot more difficult I, on Donovan Mitchell. And I think Ty has even said that where like, we want to make his life d- difficult from the tip and they've done a good job of that, but still Utah's getting good shots. Both teams are, it, it, it's basically the make or miss series. This is the ultimate make or miss series in the entire NBA. I mean, yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, both teams did what they were supposed to do. Both teams protected their home court in the first four games. That's it. If you really want to look at it, that's it. Utah won the first two at home. Clippers won the next two at home. Now it's a best of three with two games uh, up up to two games in Utah still to go. Um, I don't know what's going to happen game five. I obviously don't know what's going to happen game six. Um, I do find this interesting, though. In the home games, Clippers, 46.6% from three. Utah, 41.6% from three. In the road games... Utah, 41.9%. Clippers, 37.5%. If the Clippers can just make a little more from three in Utah, they might have a chance to steal of game five or game six, potentially. If Kawhi, and I think we saw this too in the um, down the stretch of that Dallas series, what the first two games they didn't, I mean, I guess Kawhi looked great throughout the whole series, but like, you know, he really became a revelation and a superstar down the stretch i mean it was it was it was miraculous stuff that he was doing in games three four five six it felt like um and i think if that can continue into salt lake city instead of him looking really passive instead of him you know kind of not not shying away from the moment but just not taking over until you know the fourth quarter and you, you know you put your foot down in the first quarter and you you play how you did in game six against dallas i mean that's the kind of mentality he has to come out with He's got to be the aggressor. He can't be, he cannot be passive whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, so I, the fact that they have to win one in that building, it, 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 
it definitely, you know, it puts some puts some doubt in your mind that it could happen. But hey, as as long as they get five, because I don't I don't know what my confidence level would be if it's three three going back to Salt Lake City. Uh, I the, the odds would not be in their favor right there. So do you want to do you want the most chaotic scenario? That they that uh, I know what that is, right? That they the road team wins all. It, so it would be the home team wins the first six, and then the Clippers as the road team win Game Seven. And the reason the reason I say it like that is because it would be the complete inverse of the first round. <laughs> and that's all we need for these twenty twenty one playoffs. I can't believe I, I said twenty twenty earlier. I just caught that. I just caught that I said that earlier. Th- to be honest with you. 2020 lasted three years, so <laughs> you're you're good, man. Um, here's a stat that'll make Clipper fans cringe, and we'll, we'll leave the podcast on this. The Los Angeles Clippers have not won a road game in Utah since April 28th, 2017. Oh, was that Chris, the Chris Paul special? Uh, I don't know, but they've lost seven in a row. Uh, Chris Paul had 29 and 29 and eight that night. And took a starting lineup that featured Austin Rivers, Luke Mbamute, and JJ Redick plus DeAndre Jordan to a victory on the road. God, Blake got hurt. I do remember that. Uh, can you could you name the Utah starting lineup that night? Gordon Hayward, Rudy Gobert, uh-huh. um, Joe Ingles, uh huh, Derek Favors because they were still starting big. Nope. He no. No. Bench. He was. Off oh the bench. wow. Um. Oh, George Hill, baby. George Hill. Yep. This is this is game six, by the way. Okay. So I'm missing one. Who the hell did they start? They didn't have Royce yet. So who the hell did they start at the four? You really want to know? This is going to blow your mind. Oh, my Boris God. Dio. Oh, my God. Boris Dio when he was 80 pounds overweight. Oh, my God. And killed the Clippers <laughs> in that series. Killed them. I, it, I, t- until the I, other day, I forgot George Hill was on that roster. Uh, yeah, he was there for a little while. Boris Diaw in that series, 56% from the field and was just giving the Clippers hell. He never scored more than 10 points and was like Utah's third best player. God. And then he retired. And then he, re- well, yeah, he was out. Uh, did he retire? I don't oh, know. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he went over to France for a year and then he retired. So the the yeah. fact that the fact that the Clippers won that the Clippers won that game six right and the fact that they yeah they blew it the the very next game well they were oh, exhausted man. yeah they were exhausted without Blake so I mean it made sense um so yeah Clippers haven't won in Utah since April twenty eighth twenty seventeen which was also a pretty big playoff game maybe they'll win game five I don't know Shane where can people find you find your work find your razzle dazzle. Yeah, you can find me at Forbes Sports, um, but on Twitter at YoungNBA. Going to have something out uh, early in the morning, which it already is early in the morning. I can hear birds, Justin. I can hear birds. That's how I know we've reached the time to end this podcast. Hey, we might <laughs> we might have another podcast on hand for Friday, Game 6, if you catch me in Staples Center. So look forward to meeting up with you and the crew. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be like a walking dead man out there just trying to find sleep in some corner. I might go up to the press box uh, bathroom and just sleep in the stall. To It's very to peaceful. Sleep. There's very peaceful spots in that arena. I mean, maybe not when it's full capacity, but, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. I guess I should have touched on that. I'm sorry. I know we need to end this podcast, but full capacity for game six uh, at Staples Center, which is pretty cool. Um, I did hear from workers that the workers at Staples Center will still be wearing masks and fans are required to still wear masks. But if you're eating or drinking at your seat, you do not have to wear one, which is, I mean, whatever at this point, I guess. So how have you how have you been with the uh, with the experience of wearing a mask throughout the entire game while we're working it? Because uh, it it gets a little annoying, but you got to do it. (laughs) I don't notice it sometimes. Like, I really Some, don't. Yeah, yeah. Like, for, like, long stretches, I'll just be like, oh, yeah, I guess I don't. Like, I, I won't notice that I have the mask on uh, for long stretches. But then there's other times where it's like, it'll fog up my glasses. I'm like, what the hell? And then, like, I fix it, <laughs> and then I'm and then I'm good. And then, like, if I'm talking to someone, 
like a, a reporter next to me and we're kind of throwing things off of each other. Like my mask will slowly start to ride up just to my chin. I kind of pull it back down. It's like, okay. And then, but like, it's, it's whatever. I'm kind of used to it by now. So mm-hmm. it is what it is. Uh, Shane, thank you for doing this. It ran an hour long because we love to give people just amazing tidbits of information. So um, everyone, if you made it to the end of this podcast, you know, happy game five, uh, go Clippers, obviously. And get uh, well, get well, Surge. And get well, Surge. Surge had back. Oh my God. I can't believe we didn't talk. There was too you much shit what? to talk about, Justin. <laughs> there, this is why we need to do more podcasts. Um, Serge Ibaka had back surgery. He's out for the rest of the uh, season. Uh, Surge, best of luck to you. Best wishes, man. Get healthy. We will see you next season. Uh, Kawhi Leonard tweaked his knee at the end of game four, but he, he said he's fine. So we'll see what his status is for game five. Although on the injury report, only Serge Ibaka was listed as out. Everyone else, no one else was on that injury report. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see game five is going to be interesting. It's a ruthless place to try to win a basketball game, but the Clippers need to do it because if they can close out the series at home, and then go right to Phoenix on Sunday for game one. That's the best case scenario. Shane, this has been amazing. We'll see you guys later. We're going to have to podcast after game six, win or lose. Everybody take it easy. Stay safe. Social distance. Wear your mask still if it's required. And we'll see you all on another time.